Welcome to the Gardens Podcast. This message titled Faith That Acts was given by Bill Dogtrum and is the 18th in our series, The Kingdom. We are uh, continuing our conversation in what it means when the kingdom of God shows up, what it means when um, that spiritual reality that is represented by that language, the kingdom of God, invades uh, the material world that we live in. And it is important for us to kind of keep in mind what is actually going on in, in, that, in that story, in that, in that invasion. Remember, Genesis chapter 2 makes it clear we're built to live in that thin space in between the material reality and the spiritual reality. We are, are dust into which has been breathed the life of God. So we're, we're the only creation that lives in that thin space in between. We're not animals, entirely material. We're not angels, entirely spiritual. We are human beings. We are living souls. But in the nature of our existence, it's really easy for us to forget that we are spiritual beings having a material experience, thinking instead that we are material beings that every once in a while have spiritual experiences. We aren't. We are spiritual beings first having a material experience in, in, in time. So we need to be reminded, and that's what was happening when Jesus came on the planet in the first place. He said, announce that the kingdom of God, this spiritual reality that gave frame and form to everything else, was available to them, was within their grasp. And when they heard him talk about this, they heard him talk about the, overcoming the nation of Rome who had set up and was, was ruling Palestine at the time. So when Jesus says, the kingdom of God is within your grasp, they wanted to know, where's my sword? Where's the horse I ride? Where's the uh, commander that I report to? And Jesus is saying, no, you need to change your mind about the nature of the kingdom of God. It is not about fundamentally making a change in this world order first. This world order will change but only when the spiritual dynamic, the spiritual reality changes around us. We need that same change of mind today because there are a lot of things that are happening in our material world that we want changed, right? Whether it's financially or in relationships or you, 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 you go down the, down the list. We want change to happen in the material world. Jesus says the kingdom of God is within your grasp. And when we get a hold of and are gripped by that kingdom, then this other stuff begins to find its place, find its way, and, and get sorted out. So in the Gospel of Mark, Darren and I have been just kind of wandering through this and talking about what it looks like when the kingdom of God shows up, what it looks like to follow Jesus in, in times of chaos, what it looks like to, 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 to know something that the people who walk the street beside me don't necessarily know. That is, that we will live forever. That we are created to live outside of time as well as in time. I know this is kind of a heavy beginning for a, a, you know, a Sunday morning where you're kind of just coming off Starbucks and, 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 and here we are. Uh, it's like, gee. Um, but this is important for where we go next. Because Jesus' mission is all about embodying in himself the kingdom of God. So that people who come in contact with him, all of a sudden, 
have a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that leads finally to a change of behavior. That's what we're invited into. So today we're going to look at a, at, a, at a fairly long story, actually two stories that are kind of collapsed into one another. It's in the Gospel of Mark on the um, uh, fifth chapter. Anybody uh, need a Bible? Didn't, didn't bring one? We've got some on the sides. Maybe you folks can help me. Anybody need one that didn't get one? No? Looks like we're covered. Uh, in that case, uh, we're turned to page 816 in this one. Uh, it's, or it's Ma- Matthew, Mark chapter 5, Mark chapter 5, and we'll begin at verse 21 again. Uh, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great cat crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now, there was a woman who had been suffering a hemorrhage for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was still no better, but instead grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she said to herself, if I just touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately, her hemorrhage stopped. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone out from him, Jesus turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? The disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say, Who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. She fell down before him. She told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, while he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. He allowed then no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion like this and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him. He put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk around. She was 12 years of age. At this they were overcome with amazement, and he told them that they should tell no one 
about this. And then he told them to give her something to eat. So we've got these two stories that seem to be um, kind of different, except for the fact that they're kind of smooshed in together, right? Uh, Except Mark is working overtime, and you can see this is a technique he does often, where he takes one story and divides it into two sections, or he'll take two different events that are similar and tell them in such a way that he wants you to see these things as step one and step two, uh, and that second step becoming the the critical one uh, uh, throughout, throughout the process. It's a large theme that Mark uses throughout his gospel Uh, in which oftentimes a second touch is required in order for people to see clearly what they should or could have seen the first time had they been paying attention, right? Uh, But that sometimes that second touch is required for them to kind of get it finally. How many of you know what what that feels like? You don't get anything the first time you hear it, right? Mark is aware of that, so he regularly tells people the same story in two different forms, two different times. This is one of those where it's one story that he cuts in half, inserts another story that has a similar parallel to it, and so he has this kind of sandwich story that we, that we walk through. And you'll notice the parallels. The woman had been sick for 12 years. The little girl was 12 years old. Um, the, 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 the desperation in the room was paralleled by, paralleled by the desperation in her heart as they come through to this. And both of these people risked censure by their society by reaching out to stand in this reality that we now call faith. This is what faith is. Faith is not believing things that aren't true. Faith is standing in a certain reality even though people around you don't stand in that same reality. Does does that make sense? And the reality is that God has come in Jesus and that the kingdom of God is available for entry now through him. Or as Darren talked to us this morning, we are gathered together because we are people of faith. What does that faith say? That Jesus rose from the dead and everything is different because of that event. We stand in that reality. But how many of you find yourself drifting into the material world where it becomes more and more and more real and forget that the spiritual world gives frame and form and definition and life and substance to the material. Anybody else f- struggle with that? We're, we, even this material world that we live in here, things that are solid to us, if we were to get down to the molecular level, we would discover that there's more space than matter in the things that we call solid. Right? So Jesus invites us into that superior reality and these two folks are willing to stand in the midst of a huge crowd alone as if necessary in that reality because of their desperation so jesus has come back darren was uh talking uh, uh last time about about the the far side of the sea of galilee so this little kind of fist-shaped town uh, village um lake 13 miles top to bottom about four to seven miles, depending on where you, you, you look at this lake. They've been over here the he, in, cha- in the beginning of chapter five with the, Geras, uh, the demoniac, right? And, and now they've, they've, they've come back up here and we're in Capernaum, basically, this, this kind of headquarters of Jesus's uh, ministry in this region. 
So he's familiar here. He's known here. And as he gets off the boat, people recognize him and glom around them. They are wanting to see something. They're wanting to hear something. And, and, and Jesus uh, is staying by the seashore. He can't even make any progress home because people are pressing in so much. And through the crowd comes a well-known figure, a guy by the name of Jairus, who we learn is the ruler or the leader of the synagogue. This is a person of highly, highly respected person, probably similar to what we would think of as a mayor or somebody in a, in a, uh, in a public position. He has been, has been a, a elected by his peers as one who has capacity to oversee the operation of the synagogue, which, as you remember, was the center of that Jewish community. There were not just Jews living in the city. There were Romans and various other people of various different ethnic groups. But for the Jewish people, Jairus was somebody. He was a leader in their community. And as a ruler of the synagogue, the very synagogue, by the way, in which Jesus has spoken before uh, and, and, and exists even to this day. If you go to, go to the ruins of Capernaum, uh, you can stand in the synagogue that Jairus was the ruler of. And, and part of the reason he does this, and by the way, Jairus is given, is, is given a name here. Most of the time when miracle stories are told, we don't know who's the recipient of them. Jairus is one name that we have, if for no other reason than to let people know this actually happened, and when Mark's gospel is written, Jairus is still alive. He can say, this is my story. Do, do, do you see? It is in fact true that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. I'm going to try and calm down because this is an exciting story for me and already my heart's racing. So high blood pressure and all that other stuff. Anyway, so, so, so Jairus comes in and I'm, I need you to sit with for a moment how desperate a dad has to be to leave the bedside of his dying daughter, he recognizes that any given breath she takes might be her last breath. And I need you to sit with this man, a good man, who cares so much for his little girl that he is willing to risk leaving her to help her. If you're, if you're not a parent, this, you're, you're going to have to trust me on this one. But as a parent, there is no more... Uh, 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 there is no more feeling that you can have of abandonment, abandonment than to, to, to leave your sick child to get help. When our youngest uh, middle son uh, had to go in and get uh, surgery when he was just a little baby, uh, there, there is no more feeling of helplessness than to watch the doctors and nurses, nurses rather roll him through those doors where you cannot go. Right? You're feeling that somehow you're failing in your duty as a dad. So you can feel the tension in this man's heart as he takes this little girl, his, his, his young daughter, and, and prizes her. This is an amazing story. It would make more sense in the culture if it were a son. But this father is a father to both his daughters and his sons. This is going to become important a little bit later on in the story. Uh, where, where in a, in a matriarchal, in a patriarchal, male-dominated culture, his heart beats hard and heavy for his daughter, who is near the point of death. To the point that that desperation 
pushes him out of his comfort. And I need you to sit with this. It's like the mayor of the city, the mayor of, the, of, of Long Beach, somebody, somebody who had a, 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 was, was well-known and had a position of power, position of influence, comes through the crowd. You can watch the crowd as they become aware of who it is, comes through the crowd and throws himself at Jesus' feet. This man of dignity and importance and value and worth in the culture and begs Jesus to come and touch his daughter. How desperate do you have to be to stand in that reality when everybody around you is there for the circus sideshow and you are standing in a different place than everybody else in the crowd? Jairus is begging for his daughter's health and life. And Jesus responds, okay, I'll come. I love that, by the way. I just love that. I'll come. Fine. Don't get up. Come on. So, so they're making their way, and the crowd is going crazy. It's like the circus is in town. All right, we've, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Right? They just want to see something significant happen. And so they make their way through those crowded, narrow streets on the way to Jairus' house. And you can feel Jairus' heart moving as quickly as he possibly can. And Jesus is not in the same kind of hurry that Jairus is in. He can't be because of the crowds. So that's where we leave the story. It's like, ah, what's going to happen, right? And we turn to scene number two. Here is a woman now who has been sick with a hemorrhage, the text says. Uh, most commentators think it was a menstrual flow that had not ceased for 12 years in, in, of one kind or another. And the big deal with this is not simply that she had a hemorrhage, but that as a result of that hemorrhage, she was ceremonially unclean. She couldn't go to worship. She couldn't go to synagogue. In fact, she was supposed to stay in a private place out of sight and out of contact because anybody that she came in contact with was rendered, like her, unclean. They also could not go to worship. They also could not go to synagogue. They also needed seven days of isolation before they could enter back into a public space again. You're starting to get the feeling of, of, of this woman's now desperation. She is willing, having spent all her money having consulted doctor after doctor after doctor and having gotten no improvement and now has no money. Right? Healthcare issues apparently are not new. Here she is. And her desperation drives her to risk the censure of the crowd because she stands in a different reality than they do. She has made up her mind about Jesus. She has heard of him. I love that, just that little snapshot of him. She's heard of Jesus. And in her mind, imagine this now, standing in that reality, having heard of Jesus, she says, if I can just touch his clothing, I will be made well. She gets what's going on here in a way that the rest of the crowd doesn't get. Do you follow? And so she is willing to risk ridicule, risk censure, risk ostracism, and makes her way through that crowd, knowing, and, and, and in fact, the text actually talks about touching just the trailing edge 
of his robe, of his outer garment. Remember, we've got an inner garment, then we've got a robe and a sash and various other things. And so this is the trailing edge. And she makes her way through that crowd as it's moving on its way to Jairus' house. And, she's, and, 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 and everybody she touches becomes unclean. But they're oblivious to it. it this is the wonderful irony of this, wonder, of, of this story. Because on the, her way in, she is m- making everybody unable to worship. Right? And finally, she gets to the place where just through the crowd, she can kind of lunge forward touch his garment, right? And as soon as she does, she knows that something supernatural, something spiritual, something of the kingdom has happened in her body. And she watches the crowd begin to ebb away and then stop. And hears, by now, at a bit of a distance, Jesus say, who touched my clothes? And the disciples, who are as anxious for a miracle as everybody else in the crowd, look at him and say, are you nuts? What do you mean, who touched you? Look at the crowd for crying out loud. We've got paces to go, people to see, little girls to heal. Can we just get moving here? Who touched my clothes? Are you crazy? No, he said. Somebody touched me. He felt power go out from him. And now she realized the jig was up. Hmm. Now, can you feel her tension? I've been healed for all of 30 seconds. If I don't own this, do I lose it? Ah, you could, but if I own it, then I have to tell everybody that I passed on my way in that they're a mess for the next seven days. Right? She decides she's going to throw herself on the mercy of Jesus. She comes up, throws herself at his feet, and tells him the whole sad story. And Jesus, who has other things to do, listens to her, values her. And when she is done, says to her words that she has not heard for 12 years, because for 12 years she's been a collection of symptoms. She's been a nothing and a nobody except a problem. And he says to her, daughter, daughter, you have value, you have significance, you have worth. I recognize your value, daughter. And then he says, your faith, your standing in this certain reality has made you well. Peace be unto you. And if you're Hebrew, you know the word behind this is the word shalom. It's not just talking about a cessation of warfare. It's talking about a reordering of the entirety of life centered on the fact that the kingdom of God has come. Shalom, he says to her. Go in peace. Then, commercial break. And as we've, the light fades back up, we've got these guys rushing in, tapping Jairus on the, on, the, on, the, on the shoulder. Jesus has turned to look at her. Jairus is behind him now, and he overhears them say, your daughter has died. And you can hear the sarcasm in their voice. Don't bother the 
teacher anymore. Can you imagine Jairus' heart? If you'd had a monitor on his heart throughout this whole time, he comes in begging Jesus to come. We begin to make progress. Nobody's running as fast as Jairus wants them to. You can almost see him grab Jesus by the hand and drag him through the streets, right? And, and, and then all of a sudden, Jesus stops. Nobody can figure out what's going on. Jairus is, is like, well, he doesn't have a watch. But, I mean, if he had a watch, he would have been looking at it, right? He's looking back and forth. We're only 100 yards. What, 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 what? Come on! Right? So Jesus turns and says, Jairus, don't be afraid. Only believe. That's the tension. The opposite of fear is faith. And Jesus is saying, Jairus, change your mind. The reality in which you have stood is good enough for death as well as sickness. He doesn't say that, but that's the content of his meaning. And he then grabs Peter, James, and John, Jairus, and they make their way to the house. I don't know what he does with the rest of the crowd. It's just that he says those three people are going in there. Then as he comes into the house, the place is chaos with the Jewish mourners who having heard that the daughter has died are now engaged full storm in mourning. Weeping and wailing and howling and crying and comforting as best they can. This is part of a cultural tradition. If you've been in other cultures, you see it on the news every once in a while in the Eastern culture where somebody has died, right? In, in Palestine or, or Jordan or, or whatever. Same, same culture. And Jesus just says, why are you all weeping? She's just asleep. And they laugh. Now, why is this story in here? Why is that line in here? Because Jesus has got a clue. He knows what's going on, Right? Part of the reason I think this appears here is because this is the kind of logic that people use to discount what is going to happen. Oh, yeah. Those poor first century folks who didn't have the advanced medical technologies that we have, who can't detect, who couldn't detect when somebody had actually died. In fact, the little girl was never dead. She was just asleep. Same thing for Lazarus. Same thing for, in fact, Jesus himself. He just fainted on the cross. And those poor first century folks couldn't tell because they don't have the little thing you stick on your finger to register, register the pulse. So when he was put into the coolness of the tomb, he just revived and regained enough strength to push the stone out of the way and overcome a Roman legion by himself in the dark. I just got to say, it's easier to believe the miracle. I'm just saying. So, so, so Jesus is saying to these people, she's not, she's not dead, she's just asleep. Takes mom and dad. I love this little... Mark is just such a literary genius in a sentence or two. He sketches this scene really crisply and cleanly. There's hardly any detail, but enough to see what's going on. Takes the little girl, mom and dad, the little girl, takes her by the... Can you imagine? I just need you to picture this. Jesus' hands. He's a stonemason. 
He's got calluses three inches thick on the palms of his hands. He's a workman, and he takes as tenderly as he can this little girl, 12 years old, her hand in his hand, and he just whispers to her, Talitha kum, little girl, get up. And life transfers to death and overcomes it. And she gets up and begins to walk around. In fact, the language in behind here is uh, what would happen with any 12-year-old kid who had been bed rest, confined for a significant period of time, and then instantly feel better. What do they do? They get up. She's starting to play in the room. Mom and dad are dumbfounded. They are amazed. This is the most incredible thing that has ever happened, of course, to them in their entire life or ever will happen to them in their entire life. The kingdom of God has come into their house. And Jesus says, now don't tell anybody. What? Jesus knows what's going to happen. Because when the kingdom of God comes, people want their sword. They don't want the spiritual reality that changes the way they think, the way they feel, and the way they act. They don't want that. They want a sword. They want the kingdom of God to help them overcome their stuff in their terms, not change them from the inside out, not change their mind. And then he says, I love this, give her something to eat. What? Yeah. That's the same thing as what he said to the woman. Shalom. Go in peace. Go in wholeness. Your faith, your standing in this reality has brought a new truth to bear in your heart and soul. Now, what in the world is going on here? In these two stories, what you've got is somebody who stands because of their desperation because of the pressure of their lives that is insoluble by themselves, unsolvable by themselves, are standing in a reality. And the, the, you can feel the jostling, right, that wants to push them off of that center, off of that foundation that they stand in. You can feel all of the voices that are coming at them. Your daughter has died. Don't bother the teacher anymore. You're nothing but unclean. You're a nothing and a nobody. You're, you're no good to anybody else. You're, you're, you're a contaminant. You're a toxic, you're a moving toxic waste. And she stands in a reality that is recognized by Jesus when he calls her daughter. Because it's not just what she believes about him, it's what he believes about her that is critical. And they stand in that. And, and Jesus invites them. I think he's inviting some of you here today. Don't just be an observer of the kingdom's coming. Be a participant in the kingdom's coming. Don't just bump up against Jesus in the crowd while you're waiting for a miracle. Touch him. There's a difference. All of these other people are touching Jesus, but more just bumping up against him as if he were a circus freak. One woman because she stands in a different reality, touches him in such a way that he recognizes somebody has touched me in the way that nobody else is touching me. Do you stand in that reality this morning? That if you touch him, just touch him, 
out of the desperation of the circumstances of your life, the kingdom of God can come. Change the way you think, the way you feel, the way you live. We're going to close with an invitation to that this morning. To, to touch Him. To let Him embrace you. Because I'm, I'm sensing perhaps this morning as I prayed through this that there are some of you who um, are at that point of desperation. You've given up, and whether it's physical or whether it's emotional or relational, some of you are dealing with addictions that are just overwhelming you and you cannot think for the life of you, how in the world is this going to ever be any different or better? I'm going ch- to encourage you, I'm going to invite you to stand in a certain reality. It's called faith. And to risk touching Jesus. And here's how I'd like you to do this. In a moment, we're going to come back. Brian and Jenny are going to come back and lead us. And if you're here today, and we can stand with you and pray with you for a couple of reasons. We want you to know you're not alone, for one thing. And second, that you're in a community of people who stand in that same reality. And maybe it's dealing, like I said, with addictions. Maybe it's dealing with your workaholism. Maybe you're seeing your family drift away because your priorities have been distracted into other places. And you don't know how in the world you're going to pull that back together again. Are you desperate enough to stand in a reality that nobody else can see but is more real than what everybody else can see? And if so, I'm just going to invite you to stand where you are. And then we're going to gather around you and pray for you. And then the rest of our community will worship as well. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for, um, for this word. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for what you have said to us and what you have come to do in us. God, this is just almost too good to believe that the kingdom of God has come and that it is personally present and available to us in the pains and problems of our lives. Lord Jesus, It is amazing, and we want to take advantage of it now. I pray, O God, that as we take a moment and just own our stuff, tell you our story, come and bow at your feet and say, God, help me with whatever my need is, with whatever my addiction is, with whatever my distraction is, with whatever my financial crisis is or relational crisis is God we cannot I cannot manage this on my own anymore I need I need a supernatural spiritual reality to change how I think so I can change how I live give us courage in that Lord I pray in Jesus name Amen I cultivate Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear other messages from The Garden, or if you would like to find out more about The Garden Church, check out our website at thegardenlb.org.